Mic check. One, two. Mic check. Three, four. Stop, stop, stop the presses. Start them up again. Oh, no. We broke the presses. There ain't no press. Darn. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the podcast where good taste and bad taste punch each other What's and collide. Ah, yes. <laughs> lot going on. Yeah, lot going on. You'll have to do all that mixing after the fact. No, it's not so bad. Anyway, my name is William Bibiani. I am a film critic for The Rap and Bloody Disgusting, and everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I write for IGN. Uh, I contribute to the podcast Critically Acclaimed. Yay! <laughs> And uh, oh, and I also contribute to KZRW, as do you. Indeed, we we show up on the radio from time to time. Once in the bluest of moons, uh, actually, once in a moon. Indeed, yes. Like I said, we usually show up like about every month or so. Yeah, give or take. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not on the regular, we're not on like a schedule, but yeah. Anyway, it's a good game. Mm. Uh, this week on critically acclaimed, we're reviewing a bunch of new movies. It is the first weekend in December, mm-hmm. which usually is an odd one. And this week is no exception. We are reviewing The Aeronauts Portrait of a Lady on Fire in Fabric, Little Joe, and A Christmas Prince, colon, The Royal Baby. William. Yes. You don't have to do this to yourself. Yes, I do. It's the only <laughs> way I can feel feelings anymore. Of course, I, I have seen A Christmas Prince. I'm glad and, you and, did. Uh, well, and wasn't it a classic? You know, it was something you forced me to do, you yes. see. Yeah, um, a lot of things this, I forced this, you to do. The, the, the first Christmas Prince came along. And uh, we had a special crossover episode with the the gentleman over at Linoleum Knife. Oh, that's right. That was a crossover. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I forgot about that for a second. And, uh, and you and Alonzo Duralde, who are sort of the... the Bad Christmas movie obsessives. Uh, to have experts. Gun- experts. Devotees. <laughs> Madmen. However you want to put it. Uh, we're, we're trying to have a very eloquent conversation over the thimble-shallow film The Christmas Prince. And uh, Dave White and I were just sort of quietly slamming our heads against the wall in the background. Oh, it was not quiet. No. <laughs> it was very loud. You're, 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 here, here, let me explain. Uh, See, I, well, let me explain. I'm just uncomfortable. Dave White is outwardly hateful. Oh, very much so. He does not contain. Mm. I just want to explain one thing uh, to all of our listeners. Mm. If you're curious about the dynamics between uh, myself and Whitney Seibold and Alonzo Duralde and Dave White, mm. uh, w- th- there's two things at play here. One, Alonzo Duralde and I genuinely appreciate uh, Christmas films for their chintziness. Yeah, uh, and we expect and respect that as a genre convention. We also love torturing you guys. Th- that I know, like that just know. literally yeah. love torturing our co-hosts. It's it's the best. At some point, I'm going to sit you down and force you to watch like Necromantic or one of the the <laughs> guinea pig. Like it's just uh, super super pig. edgy, okay. all, like o- over the edge, completely horrible gore film. Just, just to get revenge. Okay, I'm not. You're not sitting me down for any of the guinea pig movies mm-hmm. until you see all of the mistletoe movies at Hallmark. You know, th- this sounds like a challenge. It does. We might have to fight it. Fight this out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll, we'll watch the whole series each and Maybe. then report back. Oh. <laughs> 
<laughs> I know enough about the. Do not look the guinea pig movies up. No, don't don't even look don't, them up. They're yeah, terrible. They're, they're they're gross. They're they're. Bleh. Anyway, they're they're. they're let's move. Can we move on? J- Japanese torture movies. Can we move on, please? Okay. Thank you. Uh, before we get going this week, uh, mm-hmm. we need to talk about. Um, you know, we'd love to talk about the passing of everybody, but you know, mm-hmm. sometimes uh, someone someone passes away, and they are so monumentally important to us that we we need to make sure we set aside some time. Yeah, uh, and we just learned about the passing of the great character actor Rene Aubergenois. 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 I have seen him at a Star Trek convention. Okay, and he had the entire audience repeat his name. <laughs> Just so we all had it down, like in unison. It was Aubergenois. really good. Aubergenois. Okay. R- René Aubergenois. René mm-hmm. uh is someone whose face you know. It's probably someone whose voice you know, since he did a lot of uh, mm-hmm. voice work in cartoons. Um, he's probably best known to most people as Odo from Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Mm-hmm. He played the... Um, he was under a lot of makeup, but he basically played the slightly faceless, a little bit mm. featureless, uh, shape-shifting alien who was the head of security on the space station in Star Trek Team Space Time. A, 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 they called him Constable. He was gruff, no-nonsense, had no sense of humor, but had a bit of a heart. He was a great character. A really He's, terrific character. Yeah, absolutely. He was. He was had a little bit of that sort of... Uh, uh, distance from humanity that you got from a character like Spock, mm. but he was also very confident in himself and had a sense of humor mm. that he, he was a little condescending, but you a loved him. A little, God. <laughs> well, okay, he yeah. was very condescending. Some to some more than mm. others. Yeah, there, there's this uh, dynamic in a lot of Star Trek shows where they try to put the two mismatched characters together and watch them fight, and. So most of the time, it's really insufferable. Yeah, it's like let's put Picard and Wesley together. No, please no. no they're, they're, pass, they're, they're, pass. Just, they're just both uncomfortable. That's not fun to watch. No, and, and yeah, on Voyager, let's put Neelix and Tuvok together in an episode. No, 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 no. no. But when you put Odo and Quark together, Odo and Quark was the perfect <laughs> like, combo. Like they could probably just improvise an entire episode. O- Odo and Quark. If you didn't watch Star Trek: D Space Nine. Um, it was a little like Casablanca in space. It was like mm-hmm. this weird kind of in-between uh, locale where a bunch of different governments all mm-hmm. tried to work together, but usually were at odds. And because it wasn't a typical uh, Starfleet spaceship, there were businesses and there were spies and there was mm-hmm. all kinds of uh, illicit goings on. And the uh, owner of the big bar on Deep Space Nine, Quark, played by the great actor Armin Shimmerman, mm-hmm. uh was a con artist. He was a con artist and a thief and a swindler, and he would do anything to make money. And Odo was the chief the of cop, security. Yeah. He was the cop, and th- he knew Quark was up to bad things. And Quark knew that Odo was on to him, but they'd been <laughs> having that relationship for so long that they kind of respected each other mm. after a while, and, and they begrudgingly admired each other for being so consistent. Yeah. And they were great together. Yeah, <laughs> it was a wonderful, wonderful combo. <laughs> uh, there's a but, really good argument to be made that Deep Space Nine is the best Star Trek series. That, that's what people have been saying. I, I feel like Deep Space Nine and Next Generation, when taken as a pair, mm-hmm. uh, is sort of like the crown jewel in television sci-fi. There's when, a great argument because because yeah. one one is sort of the point and the other is the counterpoint, and I feel like they both work. With the other, yeah, um, they, they both work better with the other. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, and uh, Rene Aubergenois was in most episodes, and he really kind of brought a lot of the spirit of, of Star Trek Deep Space Nine to it, uh, in addition to being in other Star Trek things and everything. Yeah, he was uh, in a ton he was, of movies. He played Father Mulcahy in MASH. He was the one who had that great line when um, uh, Hot Lips was asking how uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, Donald Sutherland's character... Oh, I, I don't remember. Hawkeye. Yeah, that's how Hawkeye was. Oh, yeah, yeah. Why, why did? Why is he even in the military? And, and Ray Nowitzki just says he was drafted. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> that's, that's, that's yeah, a, he he worked with line. Altman. He's also in McCabe and Mrs. Miller's and several other Altman films. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he did a lot of cartoon voices. He had a voice in The Last Unicorn. Yeah, I, I think he was uh, the the drunken skeleton. Maybe I, mean, uh, I, I think he had the movie once. He, he's he, a good movie. I, I think he may have had several roles in the Last Unicorn. Um, he w- he played the cantankerous French chef in The Little Mermaid. You may remember his song, Les yeah, le Poissons, <laughs> Les Poissons. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, which which uh, at that same Star Trek convention that I mentioned earlier, he sang to us. Mm. He, That's uh, awesome. The Star Trek conventions weren't always necessarily run very well, so when it came... And uh, the smaller ones only had, like, one of the actors. Yeah. The bigger ones had, like, two or three throughout the day. Uh, but sometimes you can only have one. And he was the only star that day, and they said, well, I was gonna be here, and I was gonna... And, you know, they're there to make money, so they're selling you headshots. So you gotta buy money. You know, buy one of those shots to get yeah, the sure. autograph. It's fine. That's what they're there for. That's a standard. That's kind of your job as a fan. Uh, but... <laughs> They were out of Odo headshots. They he didn't have. They forgot to bring them, or like he didn't bring them. Something happened where he just didn't have those photos. But he did have this big pile of photocopies of Virgin, of uh, the chef from The Little Mermaid, like ah, drawings of the chef. That's funny. So he signed a bunch of those instead that's at the adorable. Star Trek convention. A total class act, that guy. Um, I actually I remember my first introduction to Rene Aubergenois. Aubergenois. Sorry. Mm-hmm. I, I keep saying it the way Tom Servo said it in Warrior of mm-hmm. the Lost World. Um, I remembered him first from when I saw, I think I was like seven or mm-hmm. eight years old, uh, when I saw My Best Friend is a Vampire. <laughs> he did some schlock, too. He did yeah. some schlock. It's pretty good schlock. It's, uh, uh, it was in that sort of um, teen sexy comedy but with monsters mm-hmm. that we got like uh, Jim Carrey did that one once bitten before he was a big star uh, Teen Wolf was popular mm-hmm. at the time Teen Witch was less popular mm-hmm. but a cult uh, icon nonetheless and my, um, my demon lover I don't remember that my one. mom is a werewolf yeah there, there were a bunch of those yeah. uh, and my best friend is a vampire is actually like Kind of refreshingly chill. <laughs> like, I remember that very distinctly. It started Robert Sean Leonard, uh, who would go on to be in Dead Poet Society and co star in House, and um, he gets bitten by a vampire. Mm-hmm. And uh, Rene Aubergenois shows up to tell him how to be a vampire. And his whole thing, he's basically Morpheus in the Matrix. Half, the, half of his role is just exposition. Mm-hmm. And it was just basically talking about how, like, Okay, yeah, yeah, no vampire. I know you think your life is over because you're a vampire, but it's not really. One of our presidents was a vampire. Which one? <laughs> and he's like, I'll never tell. <laughs> always just as a seven year old that yeah. brightened my imagination. Was it Lincoln? It was Lincoln, wasn't it? It was Lincoln. Lincoln was a vampire. <laughs> um, he was just he was an actor who had a gift to make any role, even if it was small, even if it was underwritten, mm-hmm. seem special. 
Yeah. Uh, and uh, if it was well written, he would knock it out of the park. Yeah, yeah. Just one of those great, reliable actors. And I've never heard anyone say an unkind word about him. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Renee Bourgeois, you will be missed. Absolutely. Uh, we'll talk about this even more on our Star Trek podcast, All Our Yesterdays. But we'll talk, uh, which is a Star Trek podcast, so we'll talk mostly about Deep Space Nine. But True, yeah. but like we'll talk more about Renee Bourgeois mm-hmm. on All Our Yesterdays, which is a Patreon-exclusive podcast. Uh, if you want to check that out, it's patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. But for everyone who can't afford to uh, join up, uh, we just couldn't let it pass. We just had to talk about the great Renee Aubergenois. Damn. So, um... Yeah, if you haven't seen his films, haven't seen his shows, hopefully we gave you some ideas. Wonderful actor. Uh, but let's talk oh, about the new releases. Oh, uh, one, one last thing. Oh, yeah. A bit of trivia. He is related to Napoleon. No kidding. I think it's like his great, great, great grandmother was Napoleon's sister. Like, that, like <laughs> he knows this for a fact. He's, descend- That's cool. he's descended from Napoleon. That's fun. Yeah. That's fun. That's why he's good at palindromes. Uh, is, is that... Uh, Napoleon, one of his talents. Napoleon was good at. Napoleon uh, wrote one of the most famous palindromes ever. Oh, I thought you meant Rene Auberjonois. No, no, no. I was I was making a joke about Napoleon and how oh. the one thing I know about Napoleon, other than like conquering a bunch of people, is that he <laughs> is that he wrote one of the most famous palindromes ever. And a palindrome mm. is any word or sentence mm. that reads the same way forwards yeah. as it does backwards. Go and hang, it, go hang a salami. I'm a lasagna hog. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so when Napoleon was exiled. Mm-hmm. To the planet, to the I almost said planet. I'm to the Star Trek. <laughs> when Napoleon was, d- they, <laughs> they sent him to another planet. <laughs> they sent him to the Isle of Elba. Yeah, that's where he was just supposed to live out the rest mm-hmm. of his life. Then he escaped and tried to fight his way back again. But uh, while he was on the boat to Elba, the story goes that he wrote the palindrome: "Able was I ere I saw Elba." It that's an English palindrome, though. He spoke English. Well, yeah. It doesn't work in French, so he wrote it I in English. Not. In any case, uh, Abel was I, Arisa Elba, comes up in a lot of crossword puzzles. You're welcome. That's true. That's true. You're welcome. Uh, anyway, let's move on to some new releases. As does Asta from The Thin Man. and yep. uh, they There are just some words that they just mm. clung to. And uh, Axel Rose from Guns N' Roses spells his first name A-X-L, so that shows up a lot. In basically, t- yeah. basically, any unusual grouping of letters that they mm. finally have like a pop culture... Like reference to, they'll just stick with that for decades. Yeah, it's best. I've full, filled out at least fifteen crossword puzzles with Asta. Oh, almost every yeah. crossword puzzle I, I do, and I do a lot, mm. has at least either Asta or Elba at some point. <laughs> it's great. Anyway, moving on. Uh, let's talk about the new releases this weekend. Um, yeah, for whatever reason, the first week of December is not usually considered a big one at the box office, so there typically yeah, they, isn't a big wide release. There's. Uh, for for some reason, even though like some awards type movies have already been released, like they're released around Thanksgiving, mm. but then studios tend to wait until around Christmas time to release more. You would think it would be just this like the summertime would be just be a huge glut of nothing but awards bait. But ever since blockbusters started moving into the wintertime, thanks to Titanic, I think that's the one that really kind of started that. Yeah, uh, that was also an awards bait film though. So um, what was? I, I guess Avatar might have been the one that really did it. Because Avatar was like this huge action sci-fi blockbuster that opened in December. So um There was usually there was usually like a was, big Christmas release at some point or another. But the, the Christmas releases were typically like Oscar type movies. And then there was some mm-hmm. counter programming like some comedies or kid films. Yeah. Uh but yeah, for whatever reason, there's a little bit of a lull in all releases, awards bait or not. Uh yeah, in between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And right now we're in that lull. 
as evidenced by the only major studio release this week being the Aeronauts. Yeah. Which, for all intents and purposes, looks an awful lot like an awards bait movie. Mm-hmm. It's got a great cast. It's got of, a period of, piece, of, uh, of, trappings. Yeah. It's, Eddie it's Redmayne, about a historical Academy, event. Yeah. It stars Eddie Redmayne, an Academy Award winner. It stars uh, Felicity Jones, who uh, Eddie Redmayne has already, already starred opposite in an Oscar bait film with. And she got an uh, Oscar nomination for that film. That's right. So this is all, this has got Oscar flavoring sprinkled all over the top. Mm, delicious. And, uh, you can taste the Oscar. Uh, and as such, um, you kind of know what you're getting. I feel like if you've seen the poster for this movie, you've seen the movie already. Yeah, kind of. It's a simplistic film in a lot mm. of ways. Um, it's uh, it's the story of uh, a man and a woman who mm. uh, broke the record for the highest anyone has ever been. Now, not in a Cheech and Chong way. <laughs> I would pay to see that movie. <laughs> it was just Eddie, Eddie Redmayne, Redmayne and Felicity Jones just getting high, getting higher than anyone yeah. has ever been. Just like yeah. smoke, you can't come. You like we won't let you out of this bank vault until all of this weed has been smoked. <laughs> I would pay top dollar to see that documentary. <laughs> and the vault guard is played by like some like John Cena or some somebody really funny. It would be a delight. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I like the vault guard. It's like they're trying to talk him out. Like yeah, he's like, just like, please let other- us out. Nope, not gonna let you out. Ooh, but blossom that smoke on my way here. Yeah, this is good. <laughs> That's, and, and confusingly, it's directed by David Gordon Green. Um, <laughs> the, um, Aer- the Aeronauts is an aggressively British movie. Yes, it is. Uh, directed by an aggressively British director. Uh, Tom Harper. Not uh, Tom Hooper. No. But Tom Harper, who worked on stuff like War and Peace and Peaky Blinders. Yeah. Um, which are very British things. Yeah, he also did a movie called Wild Rose, which uh, is a bit of an underdog in award season this year. It mm-hmm. came out uh, overseas in the 2018, came out here in 2019. I haven't seen it yet. Apparently it's got good performances mm-hmm. and good music. Uh, and uh, that is what I've heard. I have a screener. I just haven't gotten to it. it hasn't yet. gotten around to it yet. But yeah, it is about uh, James. Oh, what's his name? Glacier. James. James Glacier. Which I assure uh, you, we, if it uh, wasn't based on a true story, yeah. they would have changed that name. Uh, and and uh, James Glacier actually did go up in a balloon and beat a height record with his uh, his compatriot, who is actually in real life a man. In the no. movie, in the movie, they turned turned him into Felicity Jones. No, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, That's it was, it was two dudes. They turned uh, his his male counterpart into a, a showbiz impresario who shows up at the balloon launch like with a, a, a mascot animal and like doing bloomers, back yeah, flips, doing back flips and gymnastics and calling out to the audience, "We're going to go very high!" and everybody cheers. And, and it's stupid too because here's why: mm-hmm. at the beginning, so the movie is told in flashback structure. It's all about their journey up into the clouds, and there's mm-hmm. actually a lot of death-defying stuff up there, and some of that stuff is cool. Uh, but it's uh, they they go into the clouds, and then there's a flashback structure about how they got there, mm-hmm. and. It opens with they're about to go up in the sky, and uh, the guy who's like putting on this event, we, we agreed to help fund this thing if we turned it into a major event, and he sold tickets. Mm. And so they're like, "A new, uh, will we be able to go up?" It looks like there are storm clouds brewing, and Eddie Redmayne's just like, "Sure." And uh, <laughs> Eddie Redmayne pl- is like the Eddie Redmayneist he's ever been in he, this movie. Yeah, just he's like pretty Ed- Eddie Redmayneish, yeah. and um, Felicity Jones shows up, and I, at first I like, did he recruit? 
like an acrobat or something like for show purposes mm. because that would help sell the project turns out no like her, <laughs> her her father was a was a famous aeronaut who also went up in a hot air balloon and then died like at, in the process and he comes to her not because he needs help in the show department, but because he needs a balloon and mm. she can get him one. So this whole opening with her being this great <laughs> starlet and this whole, mm. you know, this putting on a great uh, whirligig extravaganza has nothing to do with anything. No, and it's a shame because no, it's a fun bit. It's a fun bit. It's, it's a good, a good opening to, to a movie. Yeah, it's a good way to draw you in. And it, it does have almost... Um, like a little bit more of a down to earth, the greatest showman feel. Yeah, it's got a PT Barnabas. Yeah, there's, there's this, yeah, this vibe, kind of yeah. uh, a circus vibe, which uh, is really appealing. And then that kind of wears off, and they go up in the sky, and they start doing all of these flashbacks about will uh, will James Glacier get the balloon or not, and what what were, what did he have to do to get this balloon? They get to like talk, go to a fancy party, and talk to the rich people there, and mm-hmm. he had to like put on a suit and make it look like he was wealthier than he was and, and charm people and there's this whole bit there's this whole bit where Felicity Jones uh, mm. yeah she's gonna help him with the balloon no she won't help him with yeah. the balloon and that'll go on for a while <laughs> but you, she's, must, you must pay the rent but I can't pay the rent and and you're watching all of these flashbacks and all these flashbacks are like will they get in the balloon mm. and they did in the first scene it's yeah. actually like really shoddy yeah. structure. It, it's all of the flashbacks are based on whether or not this balloon thing will go off, but we're flashing forward to them on the trip already. So and, there's no tension there. And it's weird because I understand well, a lot of times when you do a flashback structure, it's because your first act is boring. Mm. That's usually what it is. The opening of the story wasn't interesting. So you start at an interesting point in the story and then you show how you got there. Yeah. What that it, a lot of people think that's really clever. Let me tell you something. It's usually not. Usually, it means you need to rewrite your first act. That's yeah. usually what it means. If your first act is boring, that's the first act's fault. All right. That's not like oh well, the second and third act can save it. You have two options: rewrite the first act or get through the first act quickly. The actual ballooning stuff is actually like pretty fast paced. It only takes place like you're only in the air for about an hour. Mm. The movie is an hour and 40 minutes. Just start off with we'll never give you a balloon. Mm. Take 30 minutes to introduce the characters. At minute 35, they're in the balloon, and then we're there for the rest of the movie, and, the, and it's fine. The, the problem here is that the drama that uh, that this incredibly British film has decided to center around on is uh, Eddie, James Glacier's reputation as a, a would-be meteorologist. Mm-hmm. You think you can predict the weather? What a <laughs> fool! Yeah, there's a lot of like now, snooty British guys I, in rooms I talking about that. things that we now know as more or less scientific fact, yeah, I know as if it's impossible. Now, I respect the science of meteorology. It is a complex science that has to do do with you know air pressures and weather patterns and all the rest, and you know the in the broader scope climate. But meteorology is just about the weather. Yeah. Uh, not as much no, about no, no meteors matter, as you might think. Yeah, unfortunately not. No matter how much you try to dress it up with P.T. Barnum and big movie stars and, and flashy CGI, we're still just talking about a weatherman. <laughs> it, it doesn't make meteorology seem like exciting or sexy. 
I think that's possible, but this film doesn't do that. I mean, let's look, let's look at let's think about like mm. the great meteorologist movies. Okay, shampoo. Uh, uh, no <laughs> way. It's <laughs> a hairstylist. Uh, I, was, I, was, I actually got Groundhog Day. Oh, there you go. He's Groundhog. a meteorologist in Groundhog Day. Uh, to uh, die for. L- she does the weather. You're right. She does. Sorry. Uh, L.A. Story. Okay. Yeah. The there weather. you go. Yeah. He does the weather. Technically, Twister. I yeah. I guess. I wouldn't so. call They're... it a great movie, but it's a fun movie, and it's certainly not boring. Yeah. I, I was just the right age to see that multiple time in theaters when it came out. So like, um, it can be done, but it's hard. Yeah. And now the that framework you're talking about, where we have a scientist who is proposing something that we in the present day. Take as read that there is a science to meteorology. It's maybe an imperfect science sometimes, but there's definitely a science mm-hmm. to it. Uh, and a whole bunch of people saying, no. <laughs> like doing their jowls, like, <laughs> you're fired, like that kind of thing. Batman coming for you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> A little little deep cut for Batman. There. I like that. Uh, but I feel like a lot of this stems back to, in particular, um, a movie called The Story of Louis Pasteur. Uh, which we saw recently on our podcast, Only the Best. Yeah, which is also a Patreon exclusive. Mm. But uh, yeah, The Story of Louis Pasteur is, brace yourselves, The Story of Louis Pasteur. <laughs> Louis Pasteur was, mm. a, was a chemist. Yeah. And he was the one who helped popularize. He wasn't the only one who did it. Mm. But he got a lot of the credit for saying, Hey, doctors, wash your fucking hands. (laughs) Hey, maybe we could cure diseases instead of assuming they're made by magic. And it turns out he was right about both of those things. And a lot of the movie is a bunch of scientists telling him that he's a fool, that we all know that although germs are real, they occur spontaneously wherever there is gross. (laughs) Wherever there is gross. Yes, they don't come from somewhere. They cannot be defeated in some way. We just hope for the best. And that's science. We're scientists. Bye. (laughs) And you're just, you watch it and you, the audience, get to feel smug. Not because you did anything special, but just because you were born a hundred years later. You, you, well, and it gives you an opportunity to pretend Mm. that if you were one of the people, one of those people in that crowd back in the day, that you would be the open-minded one. Yeah, you would be the one saying, hey, I believe this guy, let's give him a balloon. That's why, like, in in the Jackie Robinson stories, it's so handy that there's a white, not racist character, Mm -hmm. because that's you, the audience, because you're not racist. No, 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 surely not. You wouldn't be one of the racist Yeah, when you grew up in the most incredibly racist time and incredibly racist community, you wouldn't have any racism. You would would be the enlightened one in that position yeah i'm not saying that those people didn't exist but no there's, but there's, there's, there's always a place for them in these kinds they, of movies they are certainly wielded in a very particular way in yes these, these historical biographies so in any case the structure of the aeronauts is kind of lousy yeah but there are things i like about this movie Hmm. Um, I think that Felicity Jones is a really great screen presence, and when she gets to be cocky and fun and smart, she's great. And I actually like seeing her play off of Eddie Redmayne here, because he gets to be the stick in the mud, and she gets to be fun. And I think Hmm. that's actually a better dynamic than they even had in The Theory of Everything. Okay. Um, So I like them together. I like the overall look of the film. I think it's a Hmm. very attractive, handsome production. The costumes are really great. The sets are very convincing. It's reminiscent of Dumbo from earlier this year. Um, I kind of see what you're getting at. A, a, a film the color timing is way different. But, well, yeah, yeah, but you know, it, it does that same sort of 
uh, it takes place in like a similar era, I think. Yeah. So it has that kind of carnival aesthetic to if it. If anyone isn't, doesn't know what the phrase color timing means, mm. color timing is um, when you make a movie, you adjust every shot so that blues they, are consistently blue. Yeah. But we get to pick different shades of blue. We get to pick different shades of things. And that's why some movies have a cold, steely, blue-green aesthetic. Mm. Some movies are really warm. Uh, and some movies have a very distinctive odd color yeah, palette that's very intentional nowadays yeah a lot of film especially well i mean that this really changed with i think oh brother we're out there was one of the first to really kind of use the new digital tools to very aggressively change the color timing of their film i think it was the first um, one that was entirely done in digital yeah 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 uh and now now every film shot on digital does it but yeah, yeah. they, they films did so it but with, it was a different process the, yeah. the color just sort of matches throughout so but yeah I, I, dumbo did have sort of much more muted colors this yeah. is a little brighter and and has more like whites and bright blues um but it, it they were evocative of like a similar aesthetic uh, the other thing i like is they actually make the balloon stuff pretty cool and exciting. I think they do a good job of getting that sense of height mm. and vertigo, which if you are conscious of or, God forbid, phobic of mm. heights, I do think that they were trying to exploit that for thrills. And I think there are bits in the movie, yeah. not the whole thing, but certainly bits where they do a really good job of making it kind of intense and scary. These are just two people in a basket above the clouds higher than anyone has ever been with all that weed they brought with them <laughs> and just, just eating bricks of weed and they've ne- no one's ever been that high up in the air before so they don't know what the lack of oxygen is going to do to their to their minds and they're starting to go a little crazy and the air is starting to thin which is causing them to ascend higher mm. but then everything is freezing and then they might not be able to actually get back down again and it's a really great sequence where uh, the vent on the top of the balloon freezes over yeah and Felicity Jones has to climb I'm the exterior of the balloon which while is really her exciting. hands are frozen stiff. Yeah. <laughs> so all that stuff, pretty cool. Pretty like, cool. I actually really like that stuff. It's hard to make a hot air balloon exciting, and I think they found some good ways. They mm. found some, the the use of a fisheye lens to uh, uh, show the idea of sort of vertigo inducing great height. Mm. I thought was very effective oh. here. Um, so I like the way it was shot. I like the two leads here more than usual. Mm. Um, I like the overall look and aesthetic of it. I had an okay time watching it, but it is nowhere near well-constructed enough to justify clearly how much of an awards bait movie they think this yeah, is. It, and it's, it's frustrating. It, it's staged like an awards bait film. It's walking like it's an awards bait film. It's a little tiny... You know, enjoyable puffball movie. It's something that you'd see with your grandparents. It feels like it should be like a made-for-TV movie that doesn't have good visual effects, but it does have good visual effects. Yeah, it it feels like like one of those... It's going to be on a green screen with a balloon. One of those Hallmark Channel uh, TV movies from like the mid-90s, like the Gulliver's Travels era. Yeah, but it's just... just, Mm. The production is way more slick than that. So Mm. if you are invested or if you really uh, can get excited about Mm. uh, stories of people like versus the elements and people like uh, you know sort of stranded in the clouds and that's like Mm -hmm. the majority of the movie this might be worth seeing it might even be worth seeing on the big screen but otherwise this is this is a rental or a streaming best it's not terrible but it doesn't really work Mm -hmm. Uh, let's move on to uh, uh, a film Mm -hmm. about a lady on fire and uh, a painting thereof. Mm-hmm. It's Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Por- Portrait of a Lady on Fire is the latest film from uh, Celine Sciamma. Let's call her Catherine. Uh, who has done um, 
several coming of age lesbian dramas. Mm. Uh, I've the first film of hers I saw was Water Lilies, uh, which stars the same actress as uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Oh, okay. Um, this is her best movie. It's also one of the best movies of the year. Uh, uh, I'm going to say this right now. I was unfamiliar. I mean, I'd heard of some of her films, but I uh, hadn't seen her other films. I'm not convinced I've seen a better romantic movie this decade. Um, it has not been a great decade for romance. There have been a few good ones here and there. Like, The Spectacular Now is an amazing love story. Yeah, it's really bad. Uh, you you, you can call this, her a great love story. Um, I don't, but okay. okay yeah, I, so. I, I'm not saying there have been bad ones. There have been mm. ones I really liked. Yeah. Uh, I, but uh, I think there's, this there's is the one blue, that really clicked the warmest for me. color is really a yeah. good love story. This one clicked for me more, okay. more than most. I think I think yeah. this has everything a great love story needs. Uh, this is about a young pa- uh, portrait painter. Her name is Marianne, and she has been called to the mansion of a very rich uh, countess of some sort, who uh, has asked her to paint a portrait of her daughter. Uh, as a wedding engagement, uh, as an engagement present for her, her betrothed. Uh, uh, not quite. Uh, she's the idea is she is trying to get her daughter engaged mm. to mm. a wealthy man in Italy. Yeah, and he's not going to venture out there just to meet her. Mm. So, in order to sweeten the pot, in order mm. to like put the OK Cupid profile with the pic, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she needs to get a really mm. alluring painting made of her, and then she's going to mail the painting over to the guy, mm. and if the guy likes the painting, he will agree to marry the young woman. Yeah. Um, which is gross. <laughs> it's not a great <laughs> system, but it's what they need to do. Mm. And the last person who tried, um, she refused to pose for him. She refused to pose yeah. for the painter, she, uh, and it just, we can't get this damn painting made. It turns out she doesn't want to get married to a man, and we'll find out why in a minute. Um, but uh, at the the young countess is named Eloise. She's played by Adele Heinel, who is was also the star of Water Lilies, and is also uh, the director's long-term girlfriend. Oh, good enough. Um, yeah. Uh, I think they met on the set of Water, Water Lilies hmm. when, um, when they were both younger. And... Uh, Marianne, the portrait painter, has to follow Heloise around uh, under the pretense that she's just going to keep her company during mm-hmm. just her long yeah. respites on the beach. She's a paid Meanwhile, companion. Yeah. That's the yeah. that's the cover story, which, which was a thing back in the sure. day. The, Darwin was a paid companion. Yeah. Uh, at one point, uh, he had to keep Darwin had to keep companion uh, like ship captains, which is why he was on all of these ship voyages. And evidently, he was such a boring companion. One of the ship's captains committed suicide. But uh, it's sad, but it's, also wow. It, it, it's sad, but yeah, what a weird detail about Darwin's life. But uh, yeah, in in following Eloise around, they start to sort of talk a little bit, but more than anything, uh, Marianne is just looking. And this Mm. film is very much about watching, observing, and appreciating another person. Yeah. And in in that watching, she, of course, is maybe without her really realizing it, falling deeply in love with Eloise. Mm -hmm. And Eloise points out later in the movie that when she's sitting, she's looking right back. So these two Mm -hmm. women are staring at one another, and the audience can feel in these very long, slow, very tactfully restrained takes how much tension is growing Mm -hmm. and how, how weirdly 
erotic it is when there's just a tiny moment of touch, a tiny glance. There's a, something that we know is unbelievably meaningful. There's this great shot towards the beginning mm. when uh, they're spending their first afternoon together. Yeah. When it's uh, it's a close-up of Marianne in profile. Mm-hmm. And she's just staring at the beach. And then she looks to her right to see if... Uh, to look at Heloise. Mm-hmm. And when he turns to her right, we see that Heloise has been like staring at her this whole time. Yeah. And then it's a series of them like each turning in profiles, like trying <laughs> not to look at each other as they look at each other. Uh-huh. And it would be comical, and it's a little comical, but it's actually really sexy and romantic mm. because they're very engaged with each other yeah, and they're yeah. complete, they're already like really fascinated with one another. There's this without saying a lot, this movie conveys so fucking mm. much. So the movie well, takes but, a turn. I just want to say this right well, now. But be, before well, we get to the turn, there's okay. I want I want to just I was not going to detail it, but okay. Well, I just there there's a bit I wanted to get to before sure. we get to the 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 any of the big turns. Uh, when we finally kind of cement their romance it takes place in one of the most sublime moments I think I've seen in film this year mm. and it, it's the campfire scene well I was, uh, I was my, my turn was way before that oh well okay that's why I was gonna get to it but uh, su- suffice it to say mm. that uh, halfway through the movie it looks like Marianne's job might be done and then she realizes that she needs to yeah <laughs> she, there's a whole nother layer to this story that yeah. needs to be told and uh, Heloise's mom has to step away for a bit and it's just the painter, her subject, and one of the maids. Mm-hmm. And it's just them living in free bliss for one week, completely exploring <laughs> and discovering what it is like to be free at a time when none of them were. Yeah. And it becomes absolutely, it goes from being this sort of intense, suspenseful thing to this incredibly sublime, unbridled, fantastic. Mm-hmm. Wow of a movie! <laughs> I, I, I'm a little speechless over yeah, just man. how amazing it is. But tell me about tell me about the fire scene. Well, the, the fire scene, the the kind of it, it it stems off. You know, once the romance is just sort of peaking, and it, and this film is wise about how it, it's not there to sort of show you the sex because that's not as important as. The sublime moments of intimacy we really surrounding it. There's a little nudity, um, but we really don't see sex. Yeah, in, a, yeah. in any meaningful way. You know, it's not yeah, about that. Like uh, I was very fond of blue is the warmest color, but there have been a lot of complaints from many critics about how the sex scenes are very male gazy. It actually, and, uh, it's sullied my opinion. I, I I used to admire that movie mm. a lot. I still think the performances are fantastic, but mm. that movie dropped way in my estimation when I started seeing it from that perspective. And yeah, I'm like, yeah, you're yeah. right. That movie actually has a lot of problems, even yeah, though there's really good stuff in it. There's a, there's a lot of really wonderful things. I think that film is actually one of the great romances about how your class and vocation can inform your romance. Mm-hmm. There's a, like the second half of that movie is where all the interesting stuff is. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. This one finds all of its intimacy in different moments. And I think the height of the intimacy comes from that campfire scene when it's completely dark out on a cliff. Our two lovers are wandering just sort of through the grasses and they come upon just a group of women around a campfire and without consulting one another, without sort of any explanation as to what's going on, they break they break into song. Yeah, they start singing this really kind of weird meditative pseudo religious acapella number. Well, which it's, is just, it's a very pagan layout. Yeah, for the whole thing, and a bunch it has of women around a fire. Yeah, it's the sort of thing that you would see in a movie like The Witch, mm. but it would have this malevolent overtone. But in Portrait of a Lady on Fire, here at last is true freedom and genuine yeah. spark. 
yeah, yeah. of life uh, mm. that otherwise was very absent. One of the things right. I love about this movie is actually the sound design. It's mm. very subtle. Hmm. Um, it's a very quiet film because it's a quiet locale. Mm. You know, it's not a hustle and bustle of an urban area. Yeah, it's not a contemporary world where there's the hum of a refrigerator in the background. Everything yeah. is very silent. So whenever there is any moment of unexpected intimacy, no matter mm. how subtle, mm-hmm. you hear it. Yeah, the sharp intake of air, <laughs> the, the brush of a hand mm. against fabric. It's mm. really intense, even though it's very understated in a lot of ways. Yeah, the performances are incredible. Yeah, um, it's rare to see two people playing lovers who, even though the movie takes place only over the course of like about two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, you get a genuine sense of true intimacy yeah. that is, eludes even great filmmakers and actors mm-hmm. sometimes. It, I, it's it's curious. I'm looking back over sort of the the great romances of sort of this more re- recent age, and the best romances have been queer romances. I've noticed there's, that too. Uh, there's uh, Carol, Portrait Lady on Fire. There's Carol. There's Call Me by Your Name, which uh, I have some trouble with just because I feel like Army Hammer is miscast. But at least in theory, it's great. Yeah, I, I think he looks too old. No, I think I think it changes the that, dynamic. I, I don't think that's an issue with the film, but uh, anyway, uh, that's one I liked at the time, and actually kind of like more the more I think about it. Yeah, um, yeah, the, blue, yeah. We talked about blue is the warmest color. There was her, and her is between a person and a thing. Yeah, uh, it's yeah, you know, it's not a second person in that uh, in that scenario. Yeah, I was trying to think of like the great, like, like a lot what? of the great like rom romantic comedies aren't even mm. that romantic, like. Crazy Rich Asians, wonderful movie. It's not so much about the romance. The romance yeah. is actually kind of cemented very mm. quickly in that movie. Yeah. So about time, I think is very mm. sweet, but I think it's a lot more about growing up than it is about their marriage. Uh, a lot of people really like Love Simon. Uh, that was sort of yeah. a sweet com- coming of age romance. Uh, Booksmart is the, you know all of the there's like a, a it's more of a, a buddy movie. There, really. It's a buddy movie, but you know there's a straight romance and a queer romance in that one. So, but um, that but a lot of movies have a romantic subplot. In fact, yeah. most movies have a romantic subplot. Oh, we're talking about when you're talking about a movie that is explicitly about romance, mm-hmm. that is about a deep connection between one or more two or more people, mm-hmm. or in the case of her, two or more entities. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I just feel like this has not been. An especially romantic decade for film. I feel like a lot of the movies that have defined this decade have not been romances in the way that, like, you know, in the 90s we had stuff like Mm -hmm. Titanic and Shakespeare in Love and Sleepless in Seattle. In the 80s... Four Weddings and a Funeral. Yeah, in the 80s we had, like, all those John Hughes movies Mm -hmm. and a ton of great romantic comedies as well. Um, the, 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 The list goes on. But, like, I just feel like in the 2010s... We were interested in other stuff, but it gave well, this opportunity. You, you're right for queer cinema to really flourish and yeah, and explore the love side of it. Yeah, when you look at um, sort of the the romantic com- the romantic comedies of the the 2000s or the 2010s, you know, sort of like the Apatow school, it's more about sort of the social aspect of romance, about how you fit it in with the other the, your whole group of friends or. Uh, the re- relationships you have, you know, with your wife, but also with your buddy, like yeah. I love you, man, They're stuff not, like that. I love you, man, is a yeah. great romantic comedy, but it's about a, uh, it's it's about, it's a, about a hetero friendship. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it has it's framed like a romantic comedy. I actually really like that movie mm. a lot, but yeah, it's not actually mm. about that kind of romance. It's close though, and mm. I would argue it's probably one of the better examples. I think it was from two thousand and nine. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, 
Yeah. So I'm also thinking of like, this is 40, you know, these things about how trying to traverse the more practical aspects of a romance has moved in. That, that's where the, the heteros are moving in oh, terms of romantic film. Here's a good example. Mm. Only Lovers Left Alive. Oh, there you go. <laughs> it's, a, it's a different kind of romance. A, because they're vampires. B, because they've been together for hundreds of years. Also, they're, but I find they're, it very reassuring. It's reassuring. Also, they're they're not so much emotional beings as they are aesthetic beings, and I think that's kind of the point. Um, oh, here's a good one. Uh, Cinderella. Kenneth Branagh's Cinderella. Cinderella is actually a very okay, sweet... Yeah, it, it's yeah. old-fashioned, but it's mm. atypically good. That's for true. that kind of Disney uh, remake. Although, and I think, I think it does the, a lot of things better than the original Cinderella. I think the central relationship, though, in that movie is between Cinderella and the stepmother. True, but I do think they do an excellent job of giving her and the prince an actual connection. That's true. As opposed to they danced for a bit. It, it's, it really, it it's, really it's, helps. It's a little more than that, but at least there's something there. Oh, I my guess. God. I just realized, you know what the other probably, like, the, another, like, the other, like, great, mm. air quotes, romantic movie? Mm-hmm. Deadpool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would actually Deadpool. argue Deadpool is pretty good romance. Deadpool is a good romance. <laughs> Not gonna fight that. Uh, I'm actually like, kinda, yeah, kinda. But the Happy Lent joke gets me every time. <laughs> <laughs> Still funny. Yeah. Um, but no, I think Portrait of Woman on Fire is is a truly intimate, beautiful, one hundred percent believable. It's so well constructed, mm. so smartly written and acted. The ending is... It's heartbreaking. Awesome. Yeah. You get two perfect endings in a row <laughs> in this movie. It's so damn good. Yeah. Um, this is absolutely, like, they, they, they just... I knew they would squeak in, like, one or two. This is why it bothered me when people were doing, like, best of the decade lists in, like, the summer. Mm. Because I knew... Or at least I hoped mm-hmm. there'd be at least one or two films that would kind of sneak in at the end of this year. Yeah, that would at least belong in the conversation. I don't know mm-hmm. if this would be in my top ten, mm-hmm. but I think this belongs in the conversation. Mm-hmm. And yeah, wow! Do not mm-hmm. miss this movie. Mm-hmm. Do not miss this movie. It's really phenomenal. Yeah, and yeah. I'm so glad I saw really, it. really, really see it for yeah. sure. I don't want to ruin any more it's, of it for you. It's just because it's, so it's, it's it's in some respects yeah. it's a s- somewhat straightforward, but ooh, it's good. It's so good. It's so good. Oh my god! Mm-hmm. All right, uh, tell me about. I didn't see this one. All right, uh, there's two I didn't see, and there's two you didn't see. Okay, no, there's two, uh, there's two you didn't see, and one I didn't see. No. Other way around. Other way around. I've seen the next. Strike two that. And, reverse and then, it. Thank you. And then you saw the the royal baby. The good one. The good, uh, the good one, of course. Tell me about mm-hmm. In Fabric, and I really was bummed I missed this because mm-hmm. I love this filmmaker. Uh, this is from Peter Strickland, who did a really terrific uh, another queer romance called uh, uh, The Duke of Burgundy. The Duke of Burgundy, which is about a, uh, a BDSM relationship between uh, lesbian lepidopterists. Yeah, they are. But they <laughs> they live in this weird community in like Eastern Europe where everyone lives in fancy houses and mm. dresses amazingly and has really kinky mm. sex and also literally everyone is a butterfly collector. <laughs> it's an amazing it's motion like, picture. Uh, it's, it's like the, it's, it's romantic. It's uh, sexy. It's scary. It's great. It's, it's like if the bitter tears of Petra von Kant threw up, and I mean that as a compliment. <laughs> Uh, like Peter Strickland says, yeah, it's not trashy enough, Fassbender. I got you. I got no, you covered. I, I looked at it as a. Um, oh, who was the guy who did Vampires Lesbos? Jess Franco. Okay. I was like, imagine if Jess Franco was as good yeah. as Jess Franco thought Jess Franco was. <laughs> Jess Franco. That's stupid. Um, 
in fabric does take a lot of visual cues from giallo and just franco and yeah. the, you know the, the whole, euro sleaze yeah, is the, the, the affectionate term we have argento bava corner of, of filmmaking it takes place in the 1980s marion jean baptiste plays a mother who's living at home with her adult son uh, she doesn't have a whole lot of time for romance, but she does go to a, a, a department store where a really witchy clerk <laughs> with really creepy fingernails and a really weird way of speaking talks about, like, the panoply of your emotions when you wear this garment. Uh, I think they use the word panoply more than once. Nice. Uh, sells her a red dress with a big black rosebud on it. This dress is a haunted living dress. Oh my god, it's I'm Dangerous Tonight. It's, oh no, it's better than I'm Dangerous Tonight because we get to see the dress like floating around and stuff in this movie. (laughs) If you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm Dangerous Tonight is a 1990 made-for-TV movie directed by Toby Hooper Mm -hmm. starring Machen Anik from Twin Peaks and uh, the great Anthony Perkins. And she finds a haunted... It's actually like a... It's, it's a, a haunted, like, Aztec burial shroud. That yeah, it was used for human in, sacrifices. Someone turns into, like, a party dress. And then she starts wearing the dress, and she starts becoming a real jerk. Yeah. That's it. That's the film. It's crazy. Mm. It's quite quite bad, actually. It's, quite bad. it's, it's actually quite fun, because a lot of weird stuff happens mm. in it, but it's, no. it's not a good film. Uh, but, yeah, here... Uh, so we, we follow that clerk down into the basement, where she and all the other clerks have these weird sex-like orgies. They're not actually having sex. Uh, And their cult leader is, like, getting off to what they're doing, and they're sort of groping at a lot of mannequins that are all... that are menstruating mannequins. Like you do. Like you do. Meanwhile, Marianne Jean-Baptiste realizes that her life is becoming more and more horrible because of this dress. Uh, Like, she starts, like, having little accidents around the house and starts getting injured out in public. She tries washing the dress, and the dress wrecks the washing machine from the inside. And eventually the dress will kind of... Just just make completely ruin her life. Uh, I hate to interrupt you, but I just thought of another great romance in this year. Oh, what is it? The Handmaiden. Oh, from this decade, you mean? Yeah, I'm yeah, sorry, from this decade. From sorry, a couple sorry, of, yeah. Yeah, another, yeah. But that's another queer another romance. Another great queer yeah. romance. I just wanted to throw it out there because we okay. forgot to mention it. Sorry, yeah. go on. Uh, it, it, the film is uh, set up like a two-parter because in the second half, we move away from Marianne, the Marianne Jean-Baptiste character and move in with a really boring, boring... Boring washing machine repairman <laughs> who is forced to wear that dress at like a stag party, and now the dress is there to ruin his life. Uh-huh. The problem is, and you know, he he just is going about his day, and he is so boring that when he starts talk, it's like a Monty Python sketch when he starts talking about the ins and outs of machine like washing machine repair, the people that are listening to him literally fall into this weird kind of trance <laughs> and they just sort of like zone out and he's just in, then you move these little pipes over and they just like are completely gone and the music starts swelling. Like they're completely hypnotized and the dress is floating around trying to ruin his life and ruin the wife, the life of his wife. But you get the sense that the, even the dress is kind of bored with him <laughs> And so you start to sympathize with the dress. The the, 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 <laughs> I had dre- a nightmare the dress like deserves a better victim than this guy. <laughs> I had a I had a I used to have recurring nightmares about uh, Chucky from Child's Play. It came around okay. it came around when I was like six years old. Okay. And it was like, just the it's, right time for me like to be like scared I, of my toys. I had Freddy nightmares, it's yeah. fine. So yeah. like I had recurring nightmares about mm-hmm. being killed by Chucky. And yeah. 
The last nightmare I had about Chucky uh-huh. was actually not a nightmare. It turned into a comedy, and that kind of took the sting off of it, mm-hmm. where I dreamt I was Chucky. Okay. But I was with I was in the most boring place in the world with not a lot of people. <laughs> and I was just like and I just remember thinking, uh-huh. well, I guess I could break some rocks. I I just I just <laughs> I was so bored I wasn't a threat. And that just humanized Chucky and made him boring to me. And I still love the movies, but he he's he he gave up haunting my nightmares after that. That's pretty fun. Yeah. Yeah, same sort of thing with this dress. And of course, okay. the big comment here, Peter Strickland is making this arch, arty, completely bonkers comment on you know consumerism and how these these things that we consume and that we're sort of drawn to are, of course, literally consuming us. Uh, but it's it's just such an odd film that that message is just sort of mixed in this big bouillabaisse of other weird aesthetic comments that I'm still <laughs> trying to decipher. Like a part part of the, yeah. well, he, there's, there's, there's this a very thoughtful director. Like he also yeah. did a great movie called The Barbarian Sound Studio. I didn't see Barbarian Sound Studio. Great movie. Yeah. Toby Jones plays a, a sound design expert who is hired from England to do sound design for an Italian Giallo a horror mm-hmm. film, um, and he arrives in Italy to do the work. Mm-hmm. Nothing has been set up for him. They haven't set up his paychecks. Mm-hmm. They aren't paying for his hotel room. No one's telling him what to do, and it's just him being isolated and alone and feeling shitty and gradually losing his mind. It's like it's almost it's almost Kafka esque. Like it's a horror movie because when you watch it, it feels like a horror movie, uh-huh. but actually nothing scary happens. But it's hypnotic regardless. And and Duke mm. of Burgundy is half a really thoughtful film about uh, long-term romances and how people sort of change and grow apart and their needs mm-hmm. evolve. And sometimes it's also just a really sexy movie about uh, attractive mm-hmm. people who are in love and have sex with each other. And sometimes it's just weird and about butterflies. And all of his movies are just full of ideas. Mm-hmm. And those ideas are brought to life through with extreme application of style. Yeah. I'm not convinced they always connect to something, but I'm always fascinated. Yeah, he's, he's like a a, a a little bit more of a thoughtful, more uh, ex, not exploitative. I'm um, just sort of a more lurid version of Peter Greenaway. Um, <laughs> If, if you know Peter Greenaway's movie, he makes equally odd films. He's did films like The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover, Zed and Two Knots, The Belly of an Architect. Look up these movies because they're all really great. He did this really v- very, very strange TV miniseries called The Falls, mm. which was uh, the, this really, really long documentary film about that interviewed a lot of people who suffered from uh, some kind of unknown brain attack and the effects it had on them. And it was similar across all these people. Mm-hmm. And it was so common that the way he narrowed it down was he only interviewed people whose last names started with the letters F L L L. Hence the title, the falls. Oh my God. And the big twist is none of it's real. He made it all up. The entire thing's actually scripted. It just looks like a documentary film. That's so ridiculous. Yeah. Peter. Oh, here's, here's one. Mm-hmm. Peter Strickland. He's Ken Russell. If he wasn't angry. <laughs> he's a friendly Ken Russell. Yeah, he's got nothing to. He, he's yeah. got weird ideas and shit, but he isn't like trying to stab into the darkness with like all mm. of his pent up rage. Like he's just. No, I just think that's neat. Mm. <laughs> like, yeah, there's there, there's there's no fuck you in Peter Strickland's work. Like really. there is with he's, Ken he's, Russell. He's sensitive. Yeah. He cares about his characters, mm. but 
I think he's more empathetic to his characters and to his audience. Mm-hmm. But he takes all of those extremes, all those extreme uh, photographic ideas, sound mm-hmm. designs, characters, storylines, and yeah, just makes them just really highfalutin in a really good way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So is In Fabric a good film? Like, I, I, is it's, it, like, it's, I'm having trouble. It's it's really peculiar. I really enjoyed it. Okay. Yeah, it's 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 a kind of a tough sell, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's really wonderfully kooky. Is it the best haunted dress movie of the year? Most certainly. There you go. Yeah. Put that on the definitely poster. better than uh, Avengers Endgame. Put uh, that on the poster. I dare uh, you. It's also uh, t- one of two horror-ish movies about haunted objects that came out this week. The other one being Little Joe. Uh, Little Joe is a film uh, by uh, the director is named Jessica Hosner, and it is about botanists. Ooh. Uh, ben Wishaw and Emily Beecham play a pair of botanists who have discovered a new, who have kind of genetically bred a new breed of flower mm. that has an antidepressant effect. Okay. And, you know, blooms. At, they look like uh, uh, Dr. Seuss creations. They got like bendy stems and big tufts on the top, and they blow out these puffs of smoke, and you are now beatific and relaxed. Are they called Gleamanexes? They're not called Gleamanexes. Okay. That's a brain um, candy reference. Uh, yes. Uh, I know. That's a movie I've no, seen like over a dozen times. If, if anyone at home was like, why do I know what Gleam and X is? It's because it's, of Kids it's in the Hall Brain Candy. Kids in the Hall Brain Candy. Yeah, yeah. Underrated comedy. Yeah. Uh, unbelievably bitter. I love it. <laughs> it's a little too bitter for my taste, but it's still good. <laughs> well, I mean, the Kids in the Hall are always bitter. They were not but... that bitter. It's a kind of a depressing mm. film in a lot of ways. But, and yeah. That's I, the, I think sort, the show sort of wasn't the, the depressing. Purpose of it. Okay. The show wasn't depressing. The movie was a little depressing. Okay. I think that's why it wasn't a big hit. I think the original ending of Brain Candy was even more depressing. Uh, fair enough. Moving on. Um, but yeah, in Little Joe, um, Ben Wishaw is working on the flowers after hours one night, and they, they blows a puff of smoke in his face. Mm-hmm. Now we know what that means from Star Trek. <laughs> the flower, nicknamed Little Joe after uh, the um, uh, the Emily Beecham character's son, who's Joe. Okay, Little Joe uh, now kind of has Ben Wishaw in its. And he begins acting a little bit like a pod person. His his mannerisms become a little bit more uh, stagey. He becomes a little bit more aggressive. And all of his actions are now going to go in service of this flower. Yeah. Uh, uh, She takes one home. Big Joe gets a whiff of it. He and his girlfriend gets a whiff of it, and they start behaving a little bit weird. And the way they start behaving toward the Emily Beecham character is a pretty classic example of male gaslighting. Ah, okay. They start saying, "No, what you're you're overreacting. Uh, you're being okay. a little too. You're getting too into the. You, I, you're. This is not really happening. I'm just trying to look at. You want this to work, right? There's a big flower competition coming up. Oh, it's too bad that our competition uh, in the next greenhouse over, all of their flowers wilted. Yeah, that's too bad. But that has nothing to do. Like all of this, they start condescending to her, and you begin to realize that this is a film very much about that kind of ga- like male natural male gaslighting that men do to women on an everyday basis. Yeah. And how 
that kind of behavior can feel like you're surrounded by pod people. You know, I've, I've argued for a while now mm. uh, that we are overdue for another pod people remake. Well, we had the invasion just like, that was like, like eight or nine years ago. No, right? that was longer than that. That was like the late 2000s. Mm. Um, invasion of the Body Snatchers, if you've never seen it. Mm. With the exception of the... I actually have never seen it, but I'm told... Did you see the Nicole Kidman one? The I did, yeah. Was it good? No. Okay. Sorry. With the exception of that one, so I'm told, all of the versions of it are great. Mm-hmm. Invasion of the Body Snatchers in the 1950s, directed by Don Siegel. Really potent sci-fi film about uh, American conformity and uh, our fears of communism and uh, just everyone around you just starts mm-hmm. conforming. Yeah. And you feel like you're the only outsider, and is it easier for you just to go along with it, or will you fight tooth and nail to keep your individuality? The 1970s version, directed by Philip Kaufman, uh, was more about um, sort of personality, mm-hmm. uh, cult of personality that were going on around at the time, and uh, the rising wave of psychology is personified by Leonard mm-hmm. Nimoy. And, um, I actually haven't seen that version. It's a great version. One, yeah. Great version, amazing ending. Um but that one tapped into a lot of fears as well. Abel Ferrara's version in the early 90s was that, more about... It's pretty terrific. It's yeah. pretty good. It's more about militarism, which I don't think was quite the issue he thought it was at the time. Well, but it aged, it's aged really well. It's, well, it's, I think because it's kind of timeless. I think it addresses not militarism in the 90s, but the militaristic mindset in general. I, that's, I, feel, yeah. I feel like at the time, it felt like maybe this isn't as topical as the others. Mm. But as time goes on, it, it takes place almost entirely at a military base. Yeah. Um, as time goes on, it, I think that movie just gets better and better and better but considering the political climate we're in and regardless of where you land on that spectrum Mm. cults of personality the need to unify and agree to the same basic reality in order to get anything Mm. done the the, Uh, the rise of authoritarianism in general especially the rise of authoritarianism in general and um, the idea that even if we're wrong we will Fight for that lie mm-hmm. just because we refuse to be wrong. That's something that a story about pod people could really crack open. Yeah. And we've yet to have one of those. And I just think it's, I'm waiting <laughs> for some great horror filmmaker yeah. or some really ambitious non horror filmmaker who wants to take a stab at the genre. Uh, to make that Pod People movie, and mm. this sounds like it's pretty close. I really it's, like the idea. Well, it's, it's it's a really restrained movie. It's very quiet. It takes place in kind of uh, it, it's not realistic. There's like a lot of really bold aesthetic choices, like bright colors and the, the uniforms the botanists wear, are really kind of Star Trekky in a weird way. Um, but it's it's really it's a very quiet film. It's not sensationalist like a Pod People movie, mm-hmm. and it doesn't have uh, it like sort of rising thriller type tension like a Pod People movie. It just has a lot of peculiarities. And the more I think about it, the more it kind of digs into me a little bit. Mm. Um, I really enjoyed it. Great, I enjoyed it a lot. It's it's not getting great critical acclaim. But some critics are really behind it, and I'm one of them. As far as I'm... I really do feel like we have a problem with a lot of mainstream critics, that I don't think that there's enough appreciation for the wide variety of the horror genre. I think Mm. there's some mainstream horror films that a lot of mainstream horror, uh, non-horror exclusive films... There's a lot of people who really focus on the horror genre. Yeah. And there's also a lot of people who review everything and sometimes review horror movies. And I feel like sometimes those critics aren't necessarily exploring the many different facets of the horror mm-hmm. genre and they don't always 
rally behind movies the way I feel like they should. Like, there's yeah. a couple of films where, like, okay, yeah, Us is great, mm. and Midsommar is great, and maybe Ready or Not is good. Ready or Not is good. And... Yeah, like, but, like, or maybe they were surprised that mm. Crawl was so good. Mm. But then, like, the Critics' Choice Awards were just, the nominations were just announced earlier today. Mm. The Critics' Choice typically nominates between five and seven movies, actors, production in, designers in, everywhere in every in category. each category, yeah. For the category of best sci-fi slash horror film, there were only four nominees this year. But a bunch of... so Especially horror those, movies. There have been a ton of great uh, horror movies. So let year. me guess. It was Midsommar yeah. and, and Us and High Life and... Oh, golly. It's another good critical darling was it the lighthouse i don't know uh it was not the lighthouse uh they were hold on let me try to uh i want to make sure i remember exactly Mm. because i was pissed um (laughs) let's see sci-fi horror movie okay it was midsommar okay it was Uh, us okay which is fine because those are notable horror films ad astra all right i'll give you astra avengers endgame what those were the four they they can nominate as like up, up to, to seven, seven and they, and they, they couldn't they couldn't think they of more than four they stalled out at Avengers they, they couldn't think the, the lighthouse didn't mm. make it on there ready or not didn't make it on there crawl didn't make mm. it on there child's play would have been a perfectly good nominee this year that was an unusually good remake <laughs> yeah. of, of well, scary like stories to play, tell yeah. in the dark Annabelle comes mm. home. I didn't like all of those movies, but all of them are good movies. Mm-hmm. Doctor Sleep, for God's sake, these are movies that deserve nominations for things, especially if a category specifically exists for them. <laughs> so I just oh, feel was... like I just feel like they don't always know what to do with these movies, yeah. and they don't always know that the things that make them great aren't the things that make them bad. And I see yeah. that sometimes where people have yeah, a really good time watching like a crazy horror movie, and then they'll say in a review. That movie was crazy. It's bad. No. The uh, be, before we get I'm making on a big to, yeah, generalization, yeah. I know, but it but it I, it bothers me as a trend. Yeah. yeah well, be, before we get on to your crappy Christmas movie, uh, can we rent rant a little bit about just sort of award season malaise? Sure. Um, it we're at the end of the year. All of the critical bodies and all of the nominating bodies are releasing their nominees and their awards, and I've. Uh, most years, but I feel like this year in particular, I'm a little disappointed. Mm. Uh, not that the things that are winning or that are being nominated are bad. Uh, like Par- Some of them are. Parasite's winning a lot of awards, and I like Parasite a lot. Parasite uh, deserves, I think, most, yeah. if not all of those awards. And, you know, The Irishman is getting a lot of awards. I like The Irishman. Uh, but I feel like, especially when it comes to, like, the critics' awards, like the critical bodies, that people in our profession would deliberately go out of their way to push something a little bit more obscure that's not getting a lot of attention. Yeah. Because there are a lot of great films from all over the place this year. It's actually quite a good year for cinema in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're willing to spread out and find all of the great things that are scattered all over the map this year. Well... And I feel like the nominations on most of these bodies tend to be clustered, and this happens every year, are clustering around just a few kind of shoe-ins. They're getting kind of homogenous, and so we're seeing a lot of nominations for the same five or six movies. Mm. Like this year, we're just seeing tons and tons of nominations where you mentioned The Irishman, Mm. uh, and and not that these are bad movies, but we're just seeing a lot. Mm. The Irishman, Parasite, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Marriage Story, hmm. Jojo Rabbit, 1917, and like The Joker. Yeah. Those are the ones that seem to be just every category. Yeah, those are probably going to be the Academy Awards. and There's Probably all of those yeah. are going to be. And here's the thing I'm going to say. Uh, there's, two, there's two things I'm going to say about this. Mm-hmm. One is in defense of that. 
because these awards bodies are all doing what every awards bodies does. They collect nominations from everybody, mm-hmm. uh, depending on how many nominees you allow. Uh, it's usually about five. Everyone vote nominates five things. Mm-hmm. If everyone, even if everyone is trying to be interesting, mm-hmm. the only things that are going to get actually nominated are the things people agree on. Yeah, that, the ones everybody has talked about. So the ones that sort of connect in that really broad way are going to get more nominations, even if, like, let's say, like, you liked The Irishman, but you thought mm-hmm. the only things that really deserve nominating about it were Joe, Joe Pesci yeah. and the screenplay. All right. Other people are going to agree on that, and Joe Pesci and the screenplay are going to get nominated. Mm-hmm. Whereas the interesting, weird things you decided to put on there, you might have been one of only five people who nominated that. Yeah. Ergo, it doesn't get nominated. It's about, nomination processes are about streamlining I, yeah, that I, process. And I, yeah. I find that inherently flawed. And I think it's particularly difficult if you're part of an awards body where the nomination process is everyone does it individually and mails it in. Mm-hmm. I feel like if we were all like having like a well, like a debate forum or something like that. And like that's, that's, the that's, way, uh, that's the way LAFCA does it. Yeah. The Los Angeles Film Critics Association, um, which we're not members of, mm. but we actually know people in LAFCA. Yeah. And it's not for um, lack of trying. Yeah, I've, I've, I've applied at least once. Uh, you've applied a couple times, I've right? applied pretty much every year for yeah. the last 10 years. <laughs> But yeah, it's, it's hard to get into. Um, and once you're in, you're in for a good, good long time. And yeah, they get together one one day out of the year, and they just debate all day. Yeah. And I think people, I don't know exactly how it works, but I think people get to stand up and uh, shout out a nomination and make their case for a nomination in front of the entire I, box. I, I know people talk about yeah. it. And you can, what you can do then is you can remind people of things that are great yeah. that might not otherwise be getting a lot of attention. For example, uh, and there's been a minor controversy of this over on film twitter mm. uh lafka uh, voted for for best actress of the year mm. mary Kay place in diane yeah see that's that's the kind of thing it's like people might not have heard of diane yeah but here we are giving an award she's the best actress of the year and i've heard two schools of thought mm. on this one that's great mm-hmm. people will talk about diane i've heard just as many if not more people complaining you bastards that really doesn't help us with our oscar handicapping that That's is not, not our, our job. job. <laughs> it is not our job uh-huh. to predict the Oscars if we're part of a critic's body. We are part of a critic's body. Mm. It's not our job to predict the Oscars. It, if anything, it behooves us to be as different from the Oscars as, as necessary. Mm-hmm. You know, Because the whole point is to spread the love. If everyone yeah. just gives the well, same award to the same person, that's not yeah. really helping anybody except that mm. one person's shelf of trophies. Yeah. If it's if it's like the Academy, where they're sort of made up of all of the professionals and it's another blind ballot, then I can kind of understand that. But it's it's kind of galling that a lot of the critic like the Critics' Choice Awards, yeah, uh, are yeah they're still doing the same thing. They're still grouping around the usual stuff. And yeah. And even I, then, there's, always, some weird, there's some weird stuff that I assumed mm. was going to be. Big and then mm-hmm. just doesn't get anything. Yeah, like, super bad. Like little, little Women was shut out of Lafka this year. Um, um, I, I, I think completely. Yeah, yeah. that pissed me off. Uh, I haven't seen it yet, but I, I just, keep hearing how great it I is. I just loved yeah. it. I, 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 not everyone loves it as much as mm. I do, but I really, really yeah, loved the, it. There's like I haven't seen 1917 yet. Um, I find it. I find it somewhat it, overrated. Yeah. All right, yeah, we'll talk about it when, when haven't, later. I haven't seen but... Little Women. I haven't, I haven't seen the new Star Wars. I'm not sure if that's going to like award type movie. Well, no one has yet. Yeah. I haven't seen Cats. Oh, I can't wait to see Cats. <laughs> I spent enough time with Cats. I, I feel like I could like really spot check it. I'm like, uh, no, a cat would never do that. Cat would never. I live with two cats. Cat would never do that. Some bullshit. Something about Andrew Lloyd Webber. Oh, yeah, I despise <laughs> Andrew Lloyd Webber. Anyway, listen, um, if you're following mm. award stuff, um, 
if a if an awards body goes out of the way to pick something odd mm-hmm. that people aren't talking about, like we're not just giving eight awards to Marriage Story, think about that. Yeah, I just want to invite you to think about that and just say like, okay, so they feel really strongly about this. Mm-hmm. This is probably worth checking out. Yeah. Like when you even at the Academy Awards, there's usually like one or two weird nominations. But just kind of yeah. just once every year, maybe in an odd category. Like sometimes makeup even, has a weird nomination. Sometimes they even win. Like remember when Jim Broadbent won an Oscar for Iris? Yeah, like, no, that wasn't a big film. He, Nobody he saw was Iris. He was but, not yeah. considered front row. It was between um, Serena McKellen and Ben Kingsley that year. Everyone thought it was going to be one oh, of them, yeah, yeah. and then going to Jim Broadbent. Great performance, mm-hmm. truly great performance. But people weren't talking about the movie. But when you look at like, okay, so there's four shoe ins, and then you find out. I remember when uh, Damian Bashir was nominated for Best Actor for A Better Place. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, it was, it was a Better Place, a Better Life. Oh no, a Better. No, oh, what was it called? I think. <laughs> hold on, hold on. I think it was a Better Life. Uh, Damian Bashir, a uh, Better Life. Better Life. Uh, Wonderful movie. <laughs> and he plays a guy who's who uh, he's in. A, he's uh, uh, he comes in from Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, he is not here legally, um, but he is working as hard as he can to save money for his family so that they can have a better mm-hmm. life. And he keeps getting kicked out. He keeps coming back in because that's where the money is, and he can make a life for his family while he himself is basically giving up his life. Mm. Beautiful movie. He was a yeah. great performance in it. When that was nominated, this is back when they were doing it live in front of a crowd. Mm. There were gasps, like what? Damian Bichir. But then you take time out of your day to see that movie because I guess it's good. Turns out, mm-hmm. wow, <laughs> what an incredible motion picture. I'm so glad you saw it. So anyway, pay attention to the outliers yeah. and pay attention to when someone, an awards body really, has uh... no outliers. Because that's an award. That's a boring award show. Mm-hmm. That is a boring ass award show. That's all and, I'm going to say. And the ironic thing is, they've been trying to get people in by having fewer outliers and fewer weird things. Yeah, we need more blockbusters. Yeah, in like here. they're f- promoting this best blockbuster award, which is like the stupidest idea imaginable. They, had, they did the first year of the Academy Awards, and they gave up on it. Anyway, moving on. Uh, there's one more film we're reviewing this week on Critically Acclaimed. Sorry, I had, had to get that rant off my yeah, we've, chest. We've, we've been talking about it a lot. We both have a lot of strong opinions. and mm. um, well, Look, we get it. We're all different. You know, we're all, we all have different ideas. And sometimes the movies that one film critic finds kind of trite or familiar just really mm. hits home to somebody because it's really personal or whatever. Mm. We get that. But we do want to spread the love out more. Than just the same six movies over and over mm. in every award season, and that's what we feel strongly about. Um, but a Christmas Prince, the Royal Baby, the Christmas Prince, the Royal Jelly. It's the first. I think it might be the first movie I've ever seen. The first sequel I've ever seen. A lot of sequels begin with, um, you know, some sort of remember the previous movies. Mm, a little bit of a recap. Like the Rocky movies usually begin Always, with some, yeah. what happened in the last Rocky. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is the first one I think I've ever seen where the movie begins with, previously on The Christmas Prince. Does it really say that? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Oh I'm trying to, I didn't remember the exact words or not. But yeah, okay, it's so, a recap of the first two movies. So, we've, so this is the third episode of the these, show. These are Netflix-released films. Yeah. So th- they have just sort of embraced their fate that these movies are being binged-watched like a television show. Yeah. 
And that, when, this, when, this, when this movie ended, you know, like when you watch a movie on Netflix and then like it ends and the credits start rolling and mm. Netflix assumes you hate credits. Yeah, so skip, they, skip credits. You want to skip? Even though the there's like a scene during the credits yeah. right now. And I'm like, you bastards. What the hell? Uh, they, or when they like shrink it up into the corner really tiny. And you have to like. Be sure to watch our original branded content. No, 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 no I'm trying to get down. back on the thing. Okay. Wanted to, wanted to see who directed that episode. Ah. Anyway. Mm. Uh, when it was basically like th- th- the next thing will start in five seconds unless you stop it. Mm-hmm. The next when you start when you stop when uh, a Christmas Prince three ends, they immediately start watching a Christmas Prince the first one. <laughs> Just because yeah. we assume you're in an endless loop. Uh, so this is your life now. I saw the first Christmas Prince. It was about a journalist who insinuated her way into a castle uh, and was. It was as a tutor, right? She was like tutoring the young girl, and it. Well, they, in love they with the assumed of... she was the new tutor. She didn't fight them on it, and so now she's in the middle of this uh, the 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 kingdom of Aldovia. I was going to call it is, Genosha, which is uh, which is uh, England, but the prince is available. <laughs> That's basically all these fictional. Co- it's never. It's never like an. It's, it's always England. Like the the mom is always a famous British actor. Mm. You know, like in this one, it's Alice Crege, or uh, uh, it was um, uh, a couple of the one. Like I think two on Hallmark, different ones had Doctor Quinn, Medicine Woman. Uh, Jane oh, Seymour. Jane Seymour, yeah. And Jane Seymour. <laughs> like they just some famous yeah. older British actress gets to play the queen, and then the prince uh, is he needs to get married or something, and also it's Christmas, and also well, his, there's a and woman his dead, who's dead father left a treasure inside a trinket around hope, the castle. You're and, skipping ahead to the sequel. It doesn't matter. The doesn't first, matter. the first film, the prince has got to be a prince, and he's going to be a king or prince, whatever. The prince has got to be a prince, and uh, <laughs> and then uh, 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 was it Rose McIver? Yeah, Rose McIver. From uh, I Zombie, uh, she's she's an enterprising reporter, and she gets herself insinuated into the palace as a tutor, mm. and uh, she falls in love with the prince, and everything's great. A year later, Christmas Prince wedding. Two, Christmas Prince, the royal wedding, they are getting so married, and everything's gonna be married, and uh, but also the prince's brother or cousin, I think, uh, is conspiring. To take over the throne because it turns out the Christmas prince was adopted and therefore not in line for the throne. That wasn't that the that was the plot of the first one. No, second one. Not I, I swear I saw that and I haven't seen the second one. Well, the se- well the second one that was the no that, that was the, the like there was like the switched birth certificates or something. No, the second one, dude. It was the first one. Uh, Christmas prince. I think it was the second. It really doesn't matter. Look, here's the deal. Here's the deal. It really it doesn't turns matter. Out, it turns out the king, the king left a new proclamation mm. hidden inside a Christmas ornament mm. that said, "It's okay if my adopted son uh, it becomes mm. king." That was I a, will that not actually. This all the first movie. Yeah, to hell with my daughter. Uh. By the way. We're still not going to let women become mm, sovereigns, still, still but, but pa- patrilineal. Yeah, and... but by God, my adopted son is fine. So now we're at Christmas Prince, the royal baby. The royal baby will not be born until the end of the movie, so it's really more of a who done it. This is the knives out of the Christmas princes, and, and who who done it? Like who? who? No. Nobody. Who's the, who's the father? No, no. Is it like Jerry, is Jerry Springer sort I of w- thing. I wish. Yeah. No, that'd be fun. Uh, no, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a, a, a big theft. 
So what happens is Aldovia. Oh no! Somebody stole Aldovia. <laughs> I wish Aldovia, in San Diego, in in the year fourteen nineteen. Sadly, this is not a crossover with the with the night the, before Christmas. The, I kept expecting him to show up Christmas. in these medieval flashbacks. But in the year fourteen nineteen, is, is, isn't Al- the, the country of Aldovia alluded to in the night before Christmas? Oh yeah. Oh no. So uh, it's the in, Avengers in fourteen nineteen. Okay. Aldovia was at war with not its neighboring country, but the country on the other side of its neighboring country. I don't know why they bothered with that, but okay. Pretty strong catapults to fight that war. Uh, they were at war with a country called Penglia. <laughs> because, of course, they were. Yeah, they're all I've, Penglians. I've, I've got a, a little bit of a spasm in my lower Penglia right now. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and uh, uh, they had a Christmas truce, which must be re-ratified every 100 years. And this is the year. Mm. Holy shit, what or, a big deal. Or the pink mood slime will seep up out of the ground and Vigo the Carpathian will come out of the painting. And the problem is, just when they are about to sign the treaty, they find out... <gasps> Treaty's been stolen. <laughs> well, there was a map on the back, and Nicolas Cage charged in. I wish <laughs> that would be crossover great. with the National Treasure movies. Yeah. Uh, so, so they have until Christmas Eve to find the treaty and sign the treaty, mm. or else the two nations are at war again. Even yeah. though they, they explicitly say they don't have standing armies, so it's kind of an empty threat. They don't have standing armies. They don't want to be at war. They can just write another treaty. That never comes up. <laughs> also, also, here's the best part. Hmm. When the the princes, or the, I guess he's the king now, when his little sister uh, finds the original like rules and proclamations, mm-hmm. uh, she's especially worried because uh, Rose McIver, the queen is pregnant mm-hmm. and she's due January 11th but <laughs> it'll be a christmas prince. Uh so they give away the the just gender reveal party of the baby if the prince can be christmas princess. Right. Uh but uh when the little sister reads the proclamation she finds out on top of everything. Oh, no. On top of the countries will be at war. Mm-hmm. It turns out that if that proclamation isn't re-ratified by the stroke of midnight on Christmas Eve, the firstborn child will be cursed. <laughs> now, they bring this up, and they bring this up to the every eve, adult. The eve of his 16th birthday. It would be one he will thing. will pick his finger on the spindle of a spinning wheel and die. It would be one thing if, like, this 13, 14 year old girl believed in curses. I'd be mm. like, okay, fine. Yeah. Uh, but every time she tells the story to an adult, mm. The adult always says that's that's extremely unlikely. They never say there's no such thing as curses. Uh They always just say, oh, come on, there's an infinitesimal chance that that's true. And so when they tell the queen, it's like, oh, I was joking about this with with, uh, Michelle, my wife and partner, and we were like, we were joking about, I was like, oh, come on, no one's going to believe this curse thing. And then the queen goes, a curse! And she's like, well, of course, she's American. (laughs) She's going to believe anything. (laughs) So... She's awful ignorant. So they have to... So they have to get this thing solved or the baby will be cursed. Also, the dungeon might be haunted. And that's where they have to search for the... For the... God, it gets stupid. It started stupid. It got stupider. 
It's amazing to watch it. Holy shit. There's this one time when, like, they're, they're, um, the queen, because she used to be a journalist, she's just like, okay, let's, I used to be a journalist. Let's go over the list of suspects and see who has motive and stuff. Uh-huh. And so the first people they check out are, like, the gay wedding planners. Why would they steal it? Exactly. And the only thing they had to go on was one of them said that the treaty, which they looked at before they signed it, mm-hmm. looked gauche. I'm like, uh, so. he's not going to destroy your country over that. It's ridiculous. Wouldn't it be like the entire apocalypse came about because just one catty dude thought something was tacky? <laughs> I wish. So that's a story. <laughs> like, it's... Oh, oh and... Uh, um, yeah, and everything's fine. Yeah. I, everything's I, I everything sort of turns out okay. They they say, Turns out Wouldn't the guy who did it, it was the guy who obviously did it. It'd be great if it ended like the uh, the, the miniseries World War Three that we covered on the Council Too Soon monthly movie recently. <laughs> yeah, it just ended with the with the, the apocalypse and everyone looking up at the bombs dropping, like yeah, a yeah. big montage. I wish... It's the only good thing about World War III. Every, I don't know. Here's what I really want to know because mm. we've had three damn movies about the Kingdom of Aldovia. How big is this country? I imagine it's like a fifth of the size of Tucson. Like it's I, tiny. I imagine it's like at the at biggest, mm. maybe the size of Wales. Okay, which is not oh, that's, small. That's, 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 but a big, it's, that's a big country. It's a big country. I, I mean, it's. Not as countries go, you could yeah, probably it's like, fit it's a like, couple, it's like a, a couple hundred whales into Russia, but you know, but no, like or in California, you'd fit yeah. a bunch of them. Like it's like it's a smallish, okay. But California's bit like you couldn't California's walk across huge. California. No, okay, in, okay, in okay that, let me put it this way: without a couple days to spare, size of Rhode Island. Okay, that's what I'm thinking. Like what about that? Okay, like you know, about that big. Like you could probably drive across the country in a day, day and a half. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's that's what I'm imagining. I don't know where they're getting all this money from. I don't know why this treaty is such a big fucking deal. I don't understand what they have to fight over. Just like good Christmases, like what are you gonna you're gonna fight a country over how good their Christmases are? Also, the king and queen, well, Al- Aldovia, uh, and what was the the peng- penguino or uh, the peng- penguins? Pengle- penguins. Uh, who are the que- the king and queen of which are. Uh, King Tai and Queen Ming, played by Kevin Shen and Momo Young. And I'm like, okay, I don't know where Aldovia is anymore geographically. I thought mm. it was like south of Paris, maybe but like it's, you know, two maybe countries it's, uh, over. You know, maybe it's left over from uh, the, the British conquest of India. It's like o- oh. over in Asia. So they'd be like really close to, you know, to the east. That would make sense. Yeah. It's like this one little ultra British Christmas centric. I guess it would have to be up in, up in the like in the Nepalese highlands somewhere because it's you know, really snowy. You know, that makes sense. Mm. Not going to lie. There you go. That so, makes more sense now. Yeah. I buy that. I was trying to figure out how it would get all the way over there, but that would make a lot of sense if it was a leftover of British colonialism. Yeah. yeah. It's kind, okay. of a, kind of a remnant of British colonialism still in that part of the world. I buy it. It's like bordering India. Um, so, yeah, this is... this. Okay, so let's be honest here. The Christmas Prince, it's mm. not a classic. But it's cute. Like it's this it, cute, sweet. Here's the problem. Disposable it it film. is now because there's three of these things. No, that doesn't. Make it you lends a validity to the other ones. It doesn't though. No, like that's uh, not a thing. Like everyone's like, oh, sequels. Well, mm. uh, someone was saying like, oh, how can it be a bad movie? It got so many sequels. 
A lot of movies get a lot of sequels. <laughs> the Marine has a lot of sequels. Puppet Master couldn't possibly be bad. Yeah. <laughs> There's 12 sequels to that movie. Yeah, like that's not... Like, Each which, one shittier than the last. Like, what was the, what's that one witch movie series you love so much? Witchcraft. Witchcraft has a million sequels. It's None of them are good. Uh, they, they stopped at 13, but then they started up again. So I'm behind on yeah. witchcraft. Like, it's witchcraft not, 9 is one of the worst movies ever made. Which is saying something. It's you so know, bad. You do not say that lightly. No. Yeah. Like it, it made me feel feel miserable <laughs> and I'd already seen eight of them so I knew I what I was getting into and somehow nine just like took a dive <laughs> there's a sex scene in that movie and they, they clearly were like filming in an abandoned apartment somewhere some hotel that had, like hadn't been clean in a long time they're rolling around on the shag carpet and you just can feel the the, the carpet tacks digging into their flesh and <laughs> Long desiccated roach corpses crushing under their shoulder blades. Can we not? Oh gosh. Anyway, my point is this: Christmas Prince. Uh. It's cute. It's nothing. It's not even a particularly good Hallmark movie, but it's it's fine. Hmm. Christmas Prince, the royal wedding. It's more of the same, but with an acorn. And then <laughs> the acorn was in the first one. The acorn's in everything. You shut up with your acorns. I'm the point you, is, the acorn was in the first. Everything's movie. an acorn with you. <laughs> that this is true. Okay, but listen to me. In any case, mm-hmm. just not sure that's true. But anyway, uh, once you start adding like curses mm-hmm. and haunted dungeons, there's two possibilities: either you've jumped the shark, or you're, you're like holding the shark at gunpoint and you're stealing the shark's money and you're getting better. Like I, I'm not entirely sure this is worse. This there, might there, actually there, be an improvement. Like I kind of wanted to get a, weirder from here. Embracing their destiny. And you know, well, soon they're gonna start doing like actual ghosts and well, time travel stuff. Because we've then, established that the Kingdom of Aldovia exists in uh the night before Christmas and the night spelled with a K. Which is a time travel story. It's a time travel story. It's it's so we've established that at some point in these like medieval uh uh countries there are and they use the word crone repeatedly in the movie, mm. which I really feel is kind of rude. Uh but mm. like there are time travel Travel magic crones okay. in this universe. And I just wanted one person in the in the, the royal baby to say, like, oh well, curses aren't a thing. Well, now hang on. We know about the time travel crones. Okay, yeah, the time travel crones are real. We can agree on time travel crones. But curses is one toke over the line. <laughs> curses well, is silly. Didn't you say one of the jokes in Buffy the Vampire Slayer is like every single fantastical creature exists, like gnomes and trolls and witches, but there's like, but leprechauns aren't real and that's leprechauns, just silly? Leprechauns is the one thing that no monster believes in because it's silly. There you go. But there are all, there's all these other monsters like yeah. you know, wolfmen and all the rest. Like, listen, we have a haunted dungeon. Mm. We know about the magic time travel crowns. Is is it actually haunted or are people just scared of it? I don't want to I don't want to ruin the twists, Whitney. So it's actually haunted. All right, got it. Uh, <laughs> I, I didn't say that. Okay. Uh but uh but we refuse to believe in curses. That's that's mm. probably like they don't even no matter what. Even like at the end when like uh uh Queen Ming mm. finds out about this Christmas curse or whatever oh, and she's just like wait a minute. Like she's like I'm sorry. What's what are you talking about? Oh, there's a curse, and if the baby, uh, if if we don't sign the treaty by midnight, the baby will be cursed. All right, listen to me. That's probably not true. Damn it, Queen Ming! You were the voice of reason. You were the voice of reason in an unreasonable world. Why are you doing this? It's so weird. You know, I should do the fourth Christmas Christmas Prince movie, Peter Strickland. 
might get God, Peter Strickland to, to get in there. I would pay that. I would pay so much to see that movie. And it's about it's about a golem that lives on Christmas. Like it eats <laughs> it eats Christmas, eats <laughs> trees and decorations. Uh, this was from the director of Judy Moody and the Not Bummer Summer. Oh, that classic. Uh, like Mike. Uh, the movie version of The Honeymooners. Okay. And the Disney Channel remake of Adventures in Babysitting. Uh, what was that one called? Adventures in Babysitting. It was actually just straight up remake of Adventures in Babysitting? 2016, right. starring Sabrina Carpenter and Sophia Carson, remake of Adventures in Babysitting. But that was a few years after The Sitter, which was also a loose remake of Adventures in Babysitting. It was. It's not so strong a movie that we need multiple versions of it. It's your babysitter takes you on a fun adventure. Yeah, that's fine. I'd be fine with that becoming like a like a minor that, subgenre. First movie is fine. They, it's they basically Mary use, Poppins, yeah, except I you end up so. doing drug deals. Yeah, there, there's a, there's a lot of homophobia in that first one because that was the era for it. Well, but, yeah. and, uh, and it's and a fair amount of racism too. But, but uh, yeah, right. all the other stuff is good. <laughs> It's a the homophobia, decade. the homophobia, and the racism were just part of the the part of the matter, part of the, the part of the part thick, of the batter that was being baked into the eighties cake. No, the thick tapestry of American culture. But uh, okay. and anyway, uh, we got We just got to move on. Um, so that is it for critically acclaimed this week. Let's review the movies on our critically acclaimed scale. Mm-hmm. We rate our movies from C minus to C plus, with uh, C being average. Mm-hmm. It's fine. It's not great, but it's okay. C minus, below average, not good, maybe terrible, but certainly we're not recommending it. C plus, above average, maybe even great, but certainly 100% unequivocally we are recommending it. Okay. A Christmas Prince, The Royal Baby. I have no idea how to rate this. <laughs> I had a fun time, but it's clearly junk in a way that even the other ones weren't, so I'm going to go with a C. Okay. All right, as just if you like Christmas junk movies... I think you'll like it, but I don't think it's going to be your favorite. Enough. And, I, and it goes in weird directions, and I appreciate that, but it's an odd watch. And I don't think I'm going out on a limb here to say that most, in fact, the vast majority of Christmas movies are junk. Especially made-for-TV Christmas yeah, movies. Yeah, yeah like, there's a lot of junk Because just the sheer volume of Hallmark Channel garbage oh, and, is, and, is and, out, out str- like for every one Gremlins or, or well, Christmas story, there's going to be a hundred Hallmark And movies. standards are so low for a lot of these. Yeah. Most people just want something inoffensive. Yeah, to put on while they're making gingerbread. That's it. You just want something light and inoffensive and positive and Christmassy. That's it. It's a low bar. Mm. And a lot of people can't hit it, but yeah. this one, this one, I think at least touches the bar, and then like puts a curse on it for some reason, and then like backs away. I don't know why, but anyway, it's a C uh, on the Christmas TV movie scale. It's a C. Christmas TV. All right, uh, Little Joe. Little Joe, a C plus. Okay. Uh, it, it's a really entrancing, strange little film. Uh, In Fabric. In Fabric is a big, really strange film, and also a C plus. So yeah, I recommend it. Uh, Portrait of a Lady mm. on Fire, huge C+. Huge C+. Plus. E- it's like, I, I'll say it again, it is one of the best films of the year. It it's is one of the un- best. deeply moving and just gorgeous and wonderful in every capacity. It's one of the best movies of the year, and I'm seriously, increasingly convinced it's the best romance of the decade. Mm. And I don't say that lightly. Mm -hmm. And I think I can only say that because we have a month to go. (laughs) And I've seen almost everything that's coming out the next month. Uh, Okay, and then lastly, The Aeronauts, uh, the ballooning film. I'm going to just want to see. I think it it is. It is not anything more. (laughs) No, it is is bright. It is energetic. There's a couple of really harrowing bits. 
Uh, but unfortunately, just some lousy structure and a certain lack of ambition when it comes to the story mm-hmm. that they're telling uh, just prevent it from ever being more than a C, which is a shame because I think there's it's, a little bit of good work in here. It's it's, it's light and ins- light as air. Yeah, uh, completely insubstantial, yeah. and it and, is a C. And, and much like uh, uh, the air at the great heights of the aeronauts' reach, starts messing with your brain after a while. Uh, and then uh, that's it. So next week we will be back with reviews of Jumanji: The Next Level. Black Christmas, the latest remake of Black Christmas. Uh, Richard Jewell, the new Clint Eastwood movie. Uh, Bombshell, uh, the new Charlize Theron film. Uncut Gems, the Adam Sandler movie people are saying is great. Mm -hmm. And a new Terrence Malick film, A Hidden Life. It's going to be a big one. Oh, yeah. Uh, The last couple of review episodes of December are always big because we're cramming a lot in. Mm. So next week and the week after that are going to be huge. And then after that, we're going to be doing episodes about our best of the year, an episode about our worst of the year. And then after that, we really need to get into the decade lists because it's been a whole decade, folks. Since the last one. <laughs> Technically, every day it's been a whole decade. I suppose that's true. Mm. Um, since the last, since a decade ago. I suppose that's true. Mm. Um, so that's it for us. Uh, you can find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network where you can uh, donate if you want to help keep the show going uh, we have exclusive mm. content and polls for you to participate in and help mm. decide future episodes of our shows um, we are on Twitter at critic acclaim I am mm. at William Bibiani I'm at Whitney Seibold um, I'm probably forgetting stuff <laughs> I think I probably am Mm, probably buy Alonzo Duralde's Christmas book yeah have yourself a movie Little Christmas buy buy my radio show yeah I'll hype that again why not I wrote a radio show uh, a couple months ago it's called The Tenth Muse you can buy it for ten bucks just contact me on social media and I can email you a copy I have nothing else to sell make something and then sell it okay I'm now he's looking around the table. <laughs> like, what, what, what can I sell? I can put it's some just, googly eyes on this pen. I have a pen. I have my my drink glass. No, everyone around me is doing cool stuff, and here I am, just being a big guy. Uh, <laughs> Except we're making a lot of content. That's what I, we do. Well, we're trying. Anyway, uh, so thank you everybody for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week, and never forget, everyone is a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry. What?